Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. Isaiah 66, hear now the word of our God. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man, he who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck, he who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood, he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem, and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. This is the word of the Lord. As we saw in Sunday school this morning, the, uh, the season of Advent is all about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean it's just about his first coming. The point is that, the point of Advent is, Christ has come and Christ is coming. He came in our flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Isaiah 66 speaks of this as Zion gives birth to a son. But he also came in the coming of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Because Jesus had said, I will be with you always. How will he be with us always? He says, I will come to you. My Father will send the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in the coming of the Holy Spirit, it is the coming of the exalted Christ to be with his people. And Isaiah 66 also speaks of this. As a land was born in one day, a nation in a single moment as the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and the exalted Christ came to dwell with his people. 
But there is also still the promise of his coming when he will come to judge the living and the dead, when he will bring the new creation that shall endure forever. And Isaiah 66 also speaks of this. As Isaiah looks at the coming of God, the coming of the Christ, as one coming. Now, we look at it and say, well, there's multiple parts to that. There was, there's first coming, his, his incarnation, there's his coming at Pentecost, there's his coming at the end. And actually, there's all sorts of other ways that scripture talks about his coming. Because Isaiah was right. It is one coming. It may have taken 2,000 years so far for that one thing to unfold, but for God, a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. So we should not be thinking of God as slow in fulfilling what he has promised. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. When... Paul speaks of the the coming of the Lord. Uh, He's often referring to the future coming of Christ. But for Paul, as for Isaiah, the future coming of Christ cannot be divorced from his first coming. Uh, We've already seen a few instances of this in 1 Thessalonians. Back in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul had asked, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul prayed that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Here in verse 15, he he speaks of we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. And then finally in chapter 5, verse 23, he asks God to sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This emphasis on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is plainly at the heart of what Paul is talking about with the Thessalonians. Because at the heart of what he's telling them is, what is your hope? As we approach Christmas, people oftentimes say, I hope I get something, but what's the thing you want for Christmas? I hope I get a a bicycle. I hope I get a pony. I hope I, yeah. But, isn't, okay, I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but how many people hope they get a pony every Christmas? But, um, But we've seen throughout 
our series here, that Paul is centered on these themes of faith, hope, and love. To continue believing God is our work of faith. To keep loving God and neighbor in our love, our labor of love. And what is it that keeps us going in faith and in love? Well, it's, it's our hope. Indeed, this is true for everyone. What keeps them going is their hope. The question is simply, what is their hope in? Whatever you hope, whatever that vision of what's coming, that thing that you're looking forward to, that is the thing that keeps you going. The problem is, anything other than the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is a hope that won't last, is a hope that will eventually fail. And in fact, that's part of what we come to today. It's part of what the Thessalonians are dealing with. Because they thought they were holding fast to their hope in Christ's coming. It just appears that maybe they kind of thought of Christ's coming as being very much, very much like what the disciples had asked Jesus back in the book of Acts when they said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking of the coming of the kingdom as, ah, you're the son of David. You're going to restore the kingdom. There's going to be a throne in Jerusalem, and we're all going to sort of be your counselors in the kingdom of God with a restored Jerusalem, with a restored son of David sitting on the throne. And now the Thessalonians are saying, well, but some of our members, some of our friends and family here in the church have died. Does that mean they've missed out on the kingdom of God? Does that mean they're not going to get to see the king coming in all his glory? It's really easy. I mean, you can tell. Remember, Paul had only been in Thessalonica for a few weeks. It would be really easy for your preaching that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. It would be really easy for people to conflate that with, oh, sort of like the Roman Empire. That's what Jesus' kingdom is like, Right? And Paul here is saying, yes, but no, because this is something that is better, is bigger, is more glorious. Our hope is not just that Jesus is going to make things really kind of cool down here. Our hope is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that motivates our love for one another? That's going to be our hope. What is it that establishes our hearts blameless in holiness? It's going to be our hope. And what is our hope? Well, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. If, if you're thinking of the kingdom of Jesus as an earthly kingdom, then you're going to miss the point of hope. The Christian hope is not merely that we get an earthly kingdom. The Christian hope is something far greater. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, here's where the first coming connects with the second coming. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, this language of falling asleep, why why does Paul refer to death as falling asleep. He says in verse 10 that Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. What does he mean? Well, 
let's think about what, why does he use this language of falling asleep? And, well, why does he do this, especially because, why not just say, died? Well, what is death? Well, that's obvious. You know, death is the end of life. When a person stops breathing, their heart stops beating. Uh, some might say when their soul leaves their body. Well, that's just describing what happens when you die. What is death? In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam that on the day in which you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Adam ate. And through his sin, death entered the world. So now we live in a world dominated by sin and death, a world in which death is considered normal, the natural conclusion to life. But it's not. Death is not normal. Death is not natural. Now, someday you will die. Your body will lie cold and lifeless in a casket. You'll be packed six feet underground. All your hopes and dreams will be over. All your friends and family will come to your funeral and then go on living without you. But what happens to you? What is death? Think about our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he trembled at his impending death. Even our Lord Jesus found that thought terrifying. The next day he was crucified and he died. And yet Acts 2.24 tells us God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Even Jesus gets the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is, think about, think about what, the, what Luke is saying in Acts 2.24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death is being described here as something that has some sort of agency. Death is holding on to Jesus and can't keep its grip. Why could death not keep its hold on Jesus? What is death? What is this thing that could not keep its hold on Jesus? This thing that has kept its hold on everyone else who has ever died? So let's think about death in this way. Because death is the entrance into the sphere or realm of God's wrath and curse. This is why Paul will use the language of the Christian falling asleep. Because the Christian the one who lives and believes in Jesus, only dies sort of. The Christian does not enter the realm of death. Death is not, after all, the end of your existence. You don't cease to exist when you die. In death, both your body and your soul die. We see a very vivid picture of this, that when your body dies, your body begins to rot. Well, when your soul dies, your soul begins to rot. But neither body nor soul ceases to exist. Death is a state of being 
subsequent to life. The difference is, as long as you are alive, there is hope of blessing. When you die, you enter the realm of God's curse. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that there is both a spiritual death and a physical death. Unbelievers are dead in their transgressions and sins. In other words, all those who are in Adam are already under God's curse. They are spiritually dead. We sometimes use that phrase. To be spiritually dead means to be in that realm of God's wrath and curse. Now, so why do I say that death is the entrance into the realm of God's wrath and curse? Well, it's because of what God told Adam, that in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now, Adam doesn't die for 900 years after that. What does it mean, in that day you will surely die? Something did happen that same day. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. They were kicked out of the land of life and out into the land of death. And why did God drive them out of the, of the garden? God says, Let, lest he stretch out his hand also to the tree of life and eat and live forever. Why would it be such a bad thing for Adam to live forever? Because living forever in a state of sin and misery would be a living death that would never end. That sounds bad, doesn't it? It sounds kind of like hell, right? Hmm, exactly. So you see, in, in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they were cast out of the land of life. They entered the realm, the land of death. The blessing of God is found in life. The curse of God is found in death. And once you are dead, it's too late to seek wisdom or blessing. And death is, in that sense, our, our physical death, is, is our final entrance into that curse which God pronounced upon Adam, dust you are and to dust you will return. And this is where in the book of Revelation, when John sees the new heaven and the new earth, he hears a loud voice saying that God will now dwell with his people in the new Jerusalem so that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Death is part of the old order. It will not be part of the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And in Revelation 22, John sees the river of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and he says, there will be no more curse. Notice the connection between life as the blessing given by God, death as God's curse. But here, in Revelation 21 and 22, death and curse are said to be no more. Something has happened. Something has changed. And we are brought again to the point that Paul makes here in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So yes, death is the realm of God's curse. But Jesus has entered the realm of God's curse in his death. He took our nature. He took our humanity to himself so that one who is truly man could enter the realm of death. And death would not be able to hold on to him. In his death, Jesus has destroyed the power of death. As John Owen puts it, we see the death of death in the death of Christ. And this brings us back to the question we asked earlier, why could death not hold on to Jesus? After all, death had successfully held on to everybody else. 
And there are two reasons for this. First, as God, he had life in himself. As John 5.26 said, the Father has given the Son to have life in himself. But then also, as man, he was without sin. And if the wages of sin is death, then death had no business trying to get its greedy little fingers on Jesus. Because Jesus alone did not deserve to die. He alone did not deserve the curse of God. Yet he willingly took it for us and for our salvation. This is the love of God that was revealed in Jesus. That although he was pure and innocent, he took God's curse upon himself so that we might receive his blessing. Now, keep in mind that when Jesus died, he did not cease to exist. This is why it's entirely appropriate to say that God died on the cross. I mean, why, uh, I, it's actually puzzling to me why anybody would have trouble with that statement. Because if death doesn't mean ceasing to exist, then God dying on the cross just means that God entered the realm of God's wrath and curse on the cross, which is what Jesus obviously did. He entered the realm of God's wrath and curse for us. And when Jesus hung on the cross, death came for him. The grave opened its mouth to swallow him. It looked as though Jesus had given up without a struggle. But that was the biggest mistake of death's life, so to speak. Because when death took hold of Jesus, the one who was the true and living God and the true and righteous man, when death brought the eternal Son of God down to the grave, when death came for the one who had life in himself, death died. Death itself came under the wrath and curse of God. The power of his divine life overcame all his enemies and ours. Yet also by the power of his human life and obedience, his victory was given meaning for us. After all, if the one who is fully God and fully man has defeated sin and death, then sin and death have no power over those who have been united to him. And this is where it gets important because sometimes when people hear this, they're thinking, oh, does this mean that... that my, you know, sort of, my, my sainted mother, is my sainted mother under the power of death right now? No. Because this is, this is what Jesus says in John 11, 25 and 26, when he comforts Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, yes, it's true. There will be this temporary separation of body and soul. But because your body belongs to me, because your soul belongs to me, therefore, the one who lives and believes in Jesus will never die. That's why Paul says... They've fallen asleep. This is not, they have not entered into the realm of God's wrath and curse. They have fallen asleep. This is a temporary condition. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Because those who have died and been raised with Christ 
can never enter into the sphere of God's wrath and curse. Paul will go on to say in the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The Christian lives in Christ. All those who are united to Christ have been united to his death and resurrection. It means that sin and death have no more power over you than they have over Jesus. Those who live and believe in Christ receive life from him. Now, in verses 15 to 17 then, Paul explains the basic order of things. When the Lord Jesus returns, the basic pattern goes like this. At the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise. Then those who are alive will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord. Now, we wind up with all sorts of questions about this, and Paul doesn't seem to care. His point is that whether you fall asleep before Christ returns or not, the result will be the same. We will always be with the Lord. Verse 16 contains a really important line. It says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, notice the way this is stated. It means that when the believer dies, we do not enter the realm of death. We remain united to Christ until the resurrection. Your soul belongs to Jesus, yes, but so does your body. After all, what is it that rises? It's the body that rises. We believe the resurrection of the body. Now, our, our shorter catechism has a useful way of putting this when it says that the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Paul will speak in 2 Corinthians 5 about being absent from the body but present with the Lord, uh, suggesting that there's, a, there's a, a sort of intermediate state where our souls are unclothed, to use his term from 2 Corinthians 5. But Paul never suggests that the, the intermediate state is especially desirable. Our longing is not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed with our resurrection bodies. So in that sense, our hope is not the intermediate state. Our hope is not, ah, when I die, I get, I get to be disembodied for a while. That's not your hope. Your hope is the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's the hope. And sure, there's this intermediate state that we'll go through for a while and what that exactly looks like. Scripture never really fleshes out in detail. You can't flesh it out. You're not resurrected yet. Why would you expect me to be fleshed out? But that's where we long for the resurrection. We long for the redemption of our bodies. And this is where, thinking about how the Catechism puts this, that our bodies, being still united to Christ, rest in their graves till the resurrection. Too often we we talk about the, ah, the body is mortal, but the soul is immortal. Well, that's not exactly a good way of putting it. Because... Just because your body will decompose does not mean that it will cease to exist. When you die, your body does not cease to exist. Rather, for those who are, who are in Christ, 
Your body remains united to Christ, just as your soul remains united to Christ. Now, there's all those fun questions about, so what happens if the shark eats, some, eats somebody, and, the, the, and, now, and now all of your cells are now part of the shark? And the, it's like, yeah, there's some really strange scenarios out there. Uh, actually, some, some have, have, have noted that they're sort of, hmm, DNA actually kind of helps at least give us a, a way of thinking about this, because does God know your DNA? Obviously, yes. So, sort of like, the, the idea of, of what would the resurrection body look like if, there's no, if there are no cells left to resurrect, hardly a problem for God. <laughs> he knows you, your body. He knows your soul. He, it's, it's, the, it's the great point that Monica, Augustine's mother, made when, you know, the, when, she, when she had always said that she wanted to be buried next to her husband back in Africa, and now she's living in Italy with her, with her sons. And when she's dying, uh, she's very clear. She's like, they're like, oh yeah, don't worry, Mom, we'll take you back to Africa to bury you there. And she's like, no. Don't bother. At the last day, my Lord will know where to find me. She understood. The resurrection of the body is what we are hoping for. That is the hope. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So your body remains united to Christ while you are in the grave. Those who sleep in Jesus and the dead in Christ are the same people. And they rise. And this is, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes this, this very nicely when it says that my comfort is that in life or in death I belong both body and soul to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. You who have been united to Christ will never face the terrors of death. Sure, there will be a, a, a temporary phase of existence where our, our souls and our bodies will be separated from each other, but since soul and body still both remain united to Christ, He is our wholeness. He is what keeps us together. He is what keeps us from experiencing the, the terrors of the grave. Sure, death is the sphere of God's curse, and it is a horrible thing for those who are apart from Christ. But when the day comes for you to stare death in the face, you know that it is a defeated enemy who is a mere phantom next to the glorious power of our Lord Jesus Christ who defeated death and took it captive so that now death is but our entrance into the glorious presence of our Savior. As Paul puts it in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. All those in all times and places who have loved the Lord Jesus will be gathered together as one to share together in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So we will always be with the Lord. Because this is the purpose of our faith, our love, and our hope. That we will always be with the Lord. There's all sorts of questions that Paul doesn't answer. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, he, he tells us we'll have spiritual bodies, not soulish bodies. Which, of course, begs the question, what is a spiritual body? That's easy. A body characterized by union with the Holy Spirit. That's about as far as Paul gets us. And that's okay. Do we we need to know all the details in advance? Because part of the point is that eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. John caught a glimpse of it and he wrote, wrote it down to the best of his ability in Revelation. But what it comes down to 
is what Paul says right here. And so we will always be with the Lord. And notice the plural here. We. Sometimes we can, I mean, we can get so focused on, I will be with Jesus. That's, but it's worth saying. We will be with Jesus. Have you ever had a really lovely conversation with a friend? A sort of conversation where you connect deep down and you felt like you really understood each other and that conversation was one that just, you, 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 you felt as, you, as though you were almost like soaring into the heavens as you were, you were discussing who, who Jesus is and, and who we are in him? The sort of feeling that this is what a relationship is supposed to be? That's what Paul's talking about. And so we will always be with the Lord. That wholeness will be found in our relationship to God, in our relationship with self, in our relationship with others, in our relationship with all of creation. We will always be with the Lord. Wholeness, peace, shalom will come. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul's talking to people who are, who are grieving losses, and Paul says, don't, don't grieve like those who have no hope. We do not grieve as those without hope. We grieve as those who have hope. Notice, we still grieve. There is this, there is this moment of separation where we are, we are sad when our loved ones depart. But yet, we don't grieve without hope. We grieve with hope. We grieve with that confidence. Remember where we are going. Remember that in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, when the king comes, that those who have fallen asleep will rise. And then we who are left will be caught up in the clouds with him. Because remember, Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die... Yet shall he live, and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Oh Lord, help us, because our faith is is feeble, and our hope loses sight of what you have called us to. And so our love falls short. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Grant us steadfastness of hope that we might keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the one who sits at your right hand, the one who has, who has come in our flesh, who has joined himself to our humanity, who has triumphed over death, so that death might no longer have power over us. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed upon the one who has triumphed over death, that we might live as those who have been joined to the life of your Son. Have mercy on us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.